Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kenny, and I'm really excited to be here with you guys for today's discussion. Now, today's topic is going to be a little bit of a continuation of what we talked about back in the introduction episode with nuclear weapons. That first episode, we touched on the concept of nuclear weapons in terms of being absolute weapons. We went into the idea of broken arrows or accidents involving nuclear weapons. But today I want to talk a little bit about nuclear theory. We're going to touch on two concepts. One is nuclear treaties. In particular, we'll talk the NPT treaty. And then we'll also touch on nuclear deterrence theory, which is one of the largest and most influential theories in all of political science. But first, a little nuclear science. So a nuclear weapon is, by definition, an explosive device that gets its destructive capabilities from nuclear reactions. And there's really two basic types of nuclear weapons. There's fission weapons, and then there's fusion weapons. Fission weapons are the ones that we typically call atom bombs or A-bombs. And in this type of weapon, essentially what happens is you have some sort of mass of either enriched uranium or plutonium that gets forced into a supercriticality, which is essentially uh, by either shooting one piece of material into another, and that's called the gun-type assembly method, or you compress it very rapidly using other explosives in kind of a sphere shape, and this is called the implosion assembly method. Now, the implosion method is considered much more sophisticated than the gun type, but both of these are still considered fission bombs and draw their explosive capability from splitting atomic nuclei, which then triggers a nuclear chain reaction, which, consider, which uh, continues to grow exponentially until you get the full blast. Now, the other type is called a fusion weapon, and this is also called a thermonuclear weapon. Sometimes you'll hear it called a hydrogen bomb or an H-bomb. And essentially what happens here is that this is a two-stage nuclear device. They have a primary fission bomb that's within it, and its detonation ultimately ends up compressing a hydrogen fuel material at the other side of the bomb. And this triggers a much higher yield than the typical fission bomb would. So the thermonuclear weapons, or these hydrogen bombs, are considered second generation and much, much stronger with a much higher yield, and are much more difficult to successfully design and detonate than the fission weapons. Now, almost all of the nuclear weapons in the world deployed today use that thermonuclear design. It's much more efficient and, as I said, much more uh, explosive. But not all of the countries in the world that have nuclear bombs have managed to test a thermonuclear device. I believe only six countries have. That's the U.S., Russia, U.K., China, France, and India. And frankly, India's detonation uh, test was a little bit controversial. Some people aren't really sure whether or not it was a true multi-stage device. But when the world was introduced to nuclear weapons in August of 1945, with two bombs being dropped on Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, their detonation sparked a lot of ideas and concerns. Now, both of those bombs that were dropped in 45 were considered fission bombs, and they are, to date, the only use of nuclear weapons that have ever been used in combat. But seeing the devastation that they caused has spawned a lot of secondary theories as well as treaties. And the first one I want to touch on is one of the biggest, and that's the NPT Treaty. Now that stands for the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, and it came into force in 1970. And out of 195 sovereign states out there in the world, 191 of them have signed this treaty at one point or another, making it one of the most agreed-upon treaties ever worldwide. Now, the treaty defines five nuclear weapon states as legitimate or legal possessors of nuclear weapons, and these are the five countries that have built and tested nuclear devices before January 1st of 1967. And this is the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom, France, and China. 
but there are five states in the world that are considered non-signatories to this treaty. Now, if you were paying attention earlier, I mentioned there were 191 out of 195 states that had signed it. And you might be thinking, well, that's only four. You know, what, who's the fifth? And that's because there is one state that did sign the treaty and they signed it in 1985, but never came into full compliance and ultimately ended up withdrawing from the NPT treaty in uh, 2003. So they were a signatory in the past, but are no longer. Of these five non-signatories, I'm going to set aside South Sudan for the moment. South Sudan is a little bit of an exception because they are the newest state in the world. They only became a state in 2011. And so the reason they haven't signed is more to their being a relatively new state, still kind of getting their bearings. They are expected to sign at some point in time. So they're in a little bit of a different category. But the other four countries have essentially not agreed to this treaty or not signed it because they all possess nukes themselves. Three of them are India, Pakistan, and Israel. And now technically Israel has never admitted to having them, uh, even though pretty much everyone acknowledges and agrees that they do. And then the fourth one is this country that signed and then backed out, and that's North Korea. Now the North Koreans are unique in being the only state to have signed it and backed out. And there's a lot of international concern surrounding this for a couple reasons. Uh, first, obviously, North Korea has some perceived instability, not only in the country, but of their leadership. There's also some concern about, well, if they were able to back out of the treaty, you never come into compliance. And there was virtually no punishment for them for backing out. You know, what's to stop another state from doing so? And so there is some concern kind of around the strength of this treaty and really how legitimate it is if countries can just kind of back out without punishment. But let's run through those four non-signatories kind of one by one. Now, India and Pakistan have publicly declared their nuclear weapons programs. We know they have them. They have announced it. India was the first of that group to have weapons. They first detonated a nuclear device in a test in 1974. And it's thought they probably have enough material for around 150 warheads or so. But India is notable for being on record as saying they don't believe the distinction between the countries that are allowed to have nuclear weapons and the countries that are not was not made on any sort of moral, ethical grounds. Therefore, they don't believe the treaty is valid. They think it's flawed. And they've been very public about these beliefs. But that said, despite being kind of outside the NPT, there has been a fair amount of cooperation with India. They have a very clean record. Their need for energy particularly nuclear energy, has been fueled by this massively growing population. And so they are viewed as essentially being cooperative and in compliance with everything else, despite not being signatories and not adhering to the rules about who should have weapons and who should not. And along India's northwest border, Pakistan has much a similar stance. They tested a little bit later. They didn't test until 1998. But they have a very similar stance that the NPT is a discriminatory treaty. They think Pakistan has the right to defend themselves. They're not going to sign the treaty. There's no real reason to. But despite this similar stance as India, they are not really treated the same way. They have long sought after kind of a similar cooperative deal with the rest of the nuclear world like India has. But that has largely been rejected because Pakistan has a little bit of a history with nuclear proliferation. In particular, there was a nuclear physicist, uh, he was an engineer, he helped found the uranium enrichment program named Abdul Qadir Khan, probably more familiar to the average person as AQ Khan. 
Now, A.Q. Khan is probably one of the most infamous names in all of nuclear science because he was involved in the proliferation of weapons and weapons technology to other countries, countries like North Korea, Iran, and Libya. And so because of Khan's kind of active role in weapons technology proliferation, there has long been suspicion that the Pakistani government was actually sanctioning some of his activities. Now, Pakistan, to their credit, has basically dismissed any of those allegations. They say there's nothing to them. And they ended up putting Khan under house arrest for a little while. Now, they have since declared him to be a free citizen, allowed him to leave his area to freely go around Pakistan. But this has led to a lot of concern in the international community that, that not only is Khan himself still a serious proliferation risk, but that the Pakistani government may have been involved in this. And so there's still a lot of suspicion around the nuclear program in Pakistan, which is why they have not been able to swing some of the same deals that India has with the rest of the world in terms of their nuclear cooperation. Next up to the plate is Israel. Now, Israel, as I mentioned, has never been confirmed to have nuclear weapons. They have this long-standing policy that they call deliberate ambiguity with regards to their program. We know they've been developing nuclear tech since about 1958 or so, but the Israeli government has refused to either confirm or deny the possession of nuclear weapons. And so this is kind of viewed as like an open secret in the world. There was a, an Israeli kind of low-level nuclear technician named Mordecai Vanunu, and he published some evidence about the program back in the 80s. And so pretty much everybody's on board saying that Israel does have nuclear weapons. But it's only really fair to point out that there is still some ambiguity about what that means and how many they have and what their policies are surrounding nuclear weapons. We do know that they have never signed on to the treaty, and they've basically made the argument based on something called Israeli exceptionality, which is pretty similar to American exceptionalism, and this idea that a country like Israel, very small country that's vulnerable, kind of a history of hostility between all of their neighbors, that they require a deterrent ability that nuclear weapons can provide them. And so they've never signed on to the treaty, and have largely refused to cooperate with any sort of inspections from the IAEA or any other nuclear agency in the world. Which means that, like Pakistan, the nuclear technology guidelines essentially rule out any sort of exports or cooperation by any major suppliers to Israel, uh, so that any sort of cooperative deal made with the rest of the nuclear world that doesn't really exist for Israel either. Now, as I mentioned before, there is a fourth member of this non-signatory but still nuclear-possessing category, and that's North Korea. I've talked about North Korea and their nuclear program on a different episode of this podcast, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but just a little bit of history. They did ratify the treaty, the NPT treaty, in 1985, but never came into full compliance with it. And in 2003, in April of 2003, North Korea became the first state to ever withdraw from the treaty. And two years after the treaty in 2005, North Korea publicly declares that they possess nuclear weapons. Beyond these four countries, we do know that there are a handful of others that have either possessed nuclear programs in the past or currently have them. And those are countries like South Africa, Iran, Libya, Syria. And there's even a few former Soviet republics, namely uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, that had weapons in the past because that's where the Soviet weapons were based when the Soviet Union fell. But none of these countries currently have the weapons. Still, the truth is the biggest nuclear threat that we face today in the world is probably not from another state, not even one of these kind of rogue states that's developing programs, not even from North Korea. Uh, because even if you believe someone like Kim Jong-un is irrational and unpredictable, which I would argue is a perception that's not only incorrect, but dangerously incorrect, 
despite his kind of cartoonish persona at times, he's, he's very brutal and he's not suicidal. He enjoys his power. It's all he's ever known. And to utilize a nuclear weapon right now for any state would essentially be just that. It'd be suicidal. The instant, say, Kim Jong-un launches a nuke at anyone, whether that's the United States, South Korea, Japan, or anyone else, the response from the international community would be swift and decisive. Uh, he wouldn't survive it. And he, so he knows he can't use the weapons personally. He only possesses them really for their deterrence factor. And this leads directly into one of the most influential theories in all of political science. And this is kind of where I want to stick, stick for the rest of the episode. And that's nuclear deterrence theory. Now, nuclear deterrence theory is this idea that nuclear weapons are not really weapons to be used, per se. Anyway, they rather act as roadblocks for countries who might seek to attack you, and thus you deter them from attacking you. It makes them think twice, because they don't want to risk the retaliation of a nuclear weapon being launched back that would cause massive devastation and death. So the presence of nuclear weapons in this theory actually deters war. And the theory then kind of continues to claim that if both sides have nuclear weapons, the chance of war drops significantly because for either side to engage in war would essentially trigger what's called mutually assured destruction, or MAD, M-A-D. Roughly defined as the complete annihilation of both the attacker, the initial attacker, and the defensive state. As, as long as there's no such thing as a first strike that can disable your opponent's nuclear weapons before they have a chance to fire them, the idea is, ultimately, both sides would resort to retaliation with their nuclear weapons and completely annihilate each other. And so, therefore, the argument goes, in nuclear deterrence theory, that the presence of nuclear weapons encourages peace. And there's actually some political scientists who have taken this concept to the extreme. There's a man by the name of Kenneth Waltz, who has essentially claimed that this is a pro-spread argument or pro-proliferation argument. That is, it's not a bad thing for more countries to get nukes because that means fewer countries will want to fight. And this theory does have some very strong advocates. There are some very strong pieces of evidence to suggest that there is something there to it. Namely, the biggest piece of evidence is probably the lack of direct war between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And actually the lack of great power wars ever since. There's really only been one war ever between two nuclear powers. And that took place in 1999 between India and Pakistan. And that was called the Kargil War. That's K-A-R-G-I-L if you want to look that up. But that was a little bit of a different case because India and Pakistan have long had a rivalry. You can almost see it as an escalation of previous conflicts. Pakistan had really just gotten their nuclear weapons. And so that was kind of a different scenario. The Cold War argument, though, is intriguing. This was a decades-long conflict between two major superpowers that both possessed nuclear weapons, and it never spilled over into a hot war between the two. Now, there were a lot of proxy conflicts. There was famously the Vietnam War and Korean War, but there were several other smaller elements as well. But the United States and the Soviet Union never faced off head-to-head, -head, and the argument here is that Nuclear weapons is what prevented that, prevented a great power war and kept it at these kind of smaller level proxy wars. And whatever you think about the theory, I, I do think that's a relatively strong piece of evidence in favor of it. Uh, the theoretical element behind the nuclear deterrence theory is strong. And when you have two countries that both possessed massive amounts of nuclear weapons, we could have destroyed the world many times over. They never spilled over into actually using them. They never spilled over into even fighting each other head-to-head, -head, instead resorting to using more or less pawns in other smaller parts of the world. 
But for all the sense that nuclear deterrence seems to make in theory, it really starts to fall apart when you apply it in reality. I mentioned earlier that the biggest nuclear threat the United States faces, or rather that the world faces, is not state usage, usage by another country. No state is going to rationally utilize such a weapon for fear of retaliation at this point. And nuclear deterrence theory does back that up. That makes some sense. But states are not the only ones in the world who seek such weapons. And on top of that, too, as I mentioned in the previous episode about broken arrows, being rational and acting rationally doesn't preclude the possibility of accidents either. Accidental detonations or theft by third parties. And these third parties don't have to be other states. I mean, we can start with some non-state actors. The first, most obvious culprit here would be a terrorist organization. While no states rationally use such a weapon because it amounts to suicide for them, and state leaders generally like their power, they aren't keen to end it through suicide, terrorist groups don't have that same compunction, at least a lot of the time. Suicide attacks among terrorist groups are not uncommon. They don't have that same disincentive to using a weapon because their attackers have already discounted the value of their own life for the cause to the point that retaliation is no longer a fear. If you're already committing suicide or expecting to die in some sort of like a kamikaze attack or anything along those lines, retaliation doesn't bother you because there's nothing to retaliate against. You're not there anymore. Which means that any state with weaponry then has to have both the resolve and the capability to prevent theft of the weapons themselves or weapons tech or plans. And not all states have this ability, materially anyway. And there are some concerns that a state like, say, North Korea might use a non-state actor to launch an attack without it drawing blowback on themselves. So this is why the risk of weapons falling into the hands of like a terrorist organization is probably the biggest nuclear threat that we face today, not from other states. And now it's easy to look at a third world country and states that aren't world powers and point fingers, you know, accusing them of being the ones most likely to take poor care of their weapons. And we've actually seen this done in uh, the case of Pakistan as well. And that even if the Pakistani officials are not actively involved in, say, AQ Khan's efforts or other things, they may not have the same material capability of safeguarding the weapons that a country like the United States or China or France or Russia has. But the truth is, this is really a case of pointing at the speck in our neighbor's eye while ignoring the log in our own. Because for weapons that are so incredibly destructive and devastating and deadly, the United States has been remarkably careless with them. I I've touched on this with the idea of broken arrows, but we have had a couple dozen cases of U.S. nuclear weapons that were just lost or accidentally detonated or some other accidental problem has taken place with them. And this is taking place in a major first world developed hegemonic state, not some third world country. And so while nuclear weapons as deterrents may be a solid theory, in theory, there are a lot of practical components that have to be considered here in terms of its viability on the world stage. Still, at the individual state level, it is a tantalizing concept, and it's frequently argued by those who want to develop them as a way to deter any sort of foreign threats that they see coming. Like, say, for instance, the country of Iran. You know, the Iranian government looks at their biggest enemies in the world, the United States, Israel, and they see both of them as having nuclear weapons. And so they are, I would argue from their perspective anyway, concerned that they do not have them themselves to deter such an attack or an invasion or an overthrow of the government like was seen in, say, Libya. Libya is actually a pretty fascinating case study on this because under their leader, Muammar Gaddafi, who's become pretty famous in more recent years, they attempted on multiple occasions to 
purchase nuclear weapons from other states. They've also made quite a few efforts to build their own nuclear weapons program. And they worked on this through the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s as well, uh, with the help of outsiders, including A.Q. Khan, who I mentioned earlier, the scientist from Pakistan. But in 2003, they finally made an agreement with the United States to dismantle their entire program of weapons of mass destruction, their entire WMD program. And this would include destruction of chemical weapons, its biological and nuclear weapons programs too. But the aftermath of this and all the true effects of it probably weren't seen for another decade or so until 2011. And this is when we saw NATO start to get involved in Libya and they intervened. And it's thought that NATO's intervention there actually makes other countries more reluctant to give up their nuclear programs because you have to wonder if Libya had never done so, would NATO have actually stepped in? And this all resulted in Gaddafi being deposed. Uh, he was overthrown. He was actually killed at the hands of rebels. And so when you're a country like Iran or North Korea, for instance, or other countries that may have their own secret programs we don't know about, and you look at a country that willingly gave theirs up and then less than a decade later was invaded and had their leader overthrown, there is a really serious argument there that having a nuclear weapons program actually would have worked as deterrence and prevented that. But I think a full investigation of the Iranian nuclear program and some of these other countries may have to wait for another day. But I'm going to leave you with a quote from one of my all-time favorite people to quote, and that's Yogi Berra, and I'll end on this. Yogi Berra once said, In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. And I love that because I think it's so true, not only here, but in other areas as well, because there are things out there that frequently may sound really good, may work really well in theory or on paper, but they don't really hold up in reality. And I think that's the problem that you run into with nuclear deterrence theory is there's a lot of strong backing to this, a lot of strong evidence, but there are a lot of practical considerations that just manage to poke holes in the theory. But with that, I think we're out of time. So I'm going to end it here. As always, hit me up on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. Find my book, Precipice, on Amazon. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. underscore Kinney. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast or advertising on it, hit me up and I'd be happy to talk to you further about it. Thanks so much for listening today, and I'm out of here in three, two, one.